You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find leaders and legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Michael Dobbs. Mr. Dobbs is a former journalist and Moscow bureau chief for the Washington Post, who was literally standing next to the tank that Russian leader Boris Yeltsin climbed aboard when he denounced the coup attempt against Soviet President Michael, excuse me, Mikhail Gorbachev in August 1991. If you visit his website, michaeldobbsbooks.com, there's a picture of him covering this amazing event. Michael is also a best-selling historian who, as I could tell you from reading three of his books, is a phenomenal writer. His book on the Cuban Missile Crisis, One Minute to Midnight, is the best account of that watershed event that I've ever read. And if you want a terrific history of how the West transitioned from World War II to the Cold War then please read Six Months in 1945. Michael also taught courses at Princeton, the University of Michigan, and Georgetown University. We are grateful and fortunate to have Michael on the podcast today to discuss his latest book, King Richard, Nixon and Watergate, an American Tragedy. Mr. Dobbs' book focuses on the first 100 days after Nixon's second inaugural in January 1973. As an unabashed Nixon fan, I hope that's okay, Mr. Dobbs, I couldn't wait to read this book, and it certainly doesn't disappoint. It's wonderful. USA Today gave it four stars out of four, and the New York Times called it intimate and extraordinary. Our main goal besides discussing this book is to make Mr. Dobbs enjoy this interview so much that he'll agree to come back to discuss his other works. Thank you for coming on the Leaders and Legends podcast, Michael. Well, thanks so much for having me, Robert. Uh, it's good to be here. We love your accent already. <laughs> we know you're from the uh, from Europe. Talk just to for, take a little bit of time and and tell us tell the leaders and legends audience how you matriculated to the United States. Well, I was uh, yeah uh, brought up and educated in the UK. Um, actually, I was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Uh, my dad was a diplomat, and uh, he spent a lot of his time in the Soviet Union. I became a journalist, and uh, as uh, serendipity would have it, I happened to be in Eastern Europe uh, and the Soviet Union when the whole communist system collapsed 
around us. And so that was a tremendous story for a reporter to cover. And um, I covered it for the Washington Post, first as a freelance and then as their correspondent in Eastern Europe and Moscow. And that's how I came to the United States. Somewhat ironic that you worked at the Washington Post and then end up writing a book about Richard Nixon. Uh, a little, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I was brought up with the legends of the Washington Post and particularly the legends of Watergate. Actually, when I was in Poland in 1981, Bob Woodward uh, came out to Poland um, because he was interested in seeing what was going on there. And we spent a lot of time together traveling around the country and the Poles couldn't understand why this famous journalist had come out to Poland. Um, he just actually wanted to see what was going on. So I got to know Bob uh, during that period and then later, of course, at the Washington Post as well. For those of you who, who aren't old enough or haven't really studied the period uh, before we move on to President Nixon, it's it's fair to point out that Poland was the epicenter of the political Cold War world in the early, late 70s, early 80s. What was it like to, to be there as the Poles uh, rose up spiritually as much as anything, especially after Pope John Paul uh, was uh, installed as pontiff in 1979? What was it like to be there in that, in that moment? Right. Well, I happen to have the sheer good luck to be in Poland in August of 1980 when the Lenin Shipyard, a very symbolic name, uh, uh, went on strike. Is that Gdansk? Their strike in Gdansk, and their mm -hmm. strike resulted in the rise of the Solidarity Trade Union movement. And eventually, I mean, those events led to the collapse of communism a decade later. And, uh, you know, for a young reporter, it was an amazing event to cover because I'd never been able before to get close to you know, workers, for example, um, uh, the work, work, workers, uh, you could interview them, but there was always a government minder in tow. So you couldn't have free conversations with workers or anyone else really in a country like Poland. And for the first time in my career covering communist countries, I was able to, you know, talk to ordinary people, um, particularly workers in the case of the Lenin shipyard, and understand how they really felt. It was like, you know, I was, I've described it as uh, being a spectator in a play and you're watching the play and then suddenly you can go behind the scenes and see how the production is really happening. And Gdansk itself is, is such an interesting city. It's, it's almost kind of a, a small microcosm of, of 20th century history in the sense that it was, and correct me if my history is wrong here, but it was Danzig. It was part of the imperial uh, imperial Germany. Became a free city, part of the Polish corridor after the Treaty of Versailles. Then became part of Poland, communist Poland, and then really was where everybody's eyes turned in the early late seventies, early eighties, as as it became clear that technology, as much as anything, plus in the case of Poland and Catholicism, religion was going to uh, play an important role towards the what turned out to be the twilight of the Cold War. Yeah, you're right. I mean, Danzig, or as it was known uh, in Poland, Gdansk, uh, was the place where the Second World War started because uh, Hitler wanted to um, 
you know, to, to occupy that corridor of Polish land. And he did. So that's how World War II started. And then later, it became equally symbolic um, for the role it played in the collapse of communism in 1980, which I was privileged to uh, witness personally. The fascination with Richard Nixon generally and Watergate specifically seems relatively unabated during the past 47 years. We're actually going to post this podcast on August 9th, which is the anniversary of Nixon's resignation being effective. What are your thoughts as to why him and the event still stay so fresh? Well, Nixon's a fascinating person. Um, I mean, as I discovered when I did the research for this book, um, he's a more contradictory, complex uh, person than, um, you know, some of the kind of cardboard uh, cutout uh, versions of Nixon um, have made him appear. And, um, you know, he was a man who came up from virtually nothing. He was born to a poor Quaker family out in California. His father was a struggling uh, uh, farmer and then became a struggling grocer. So everything that Nixon achieved in his life, he achieved through his own efforts. Um, This is a story of a man who made himself, uh, rose all the way to becoming president, and then destroyed himself. So, you know, to my mind, that is the story of, you know, Shakespearean grandeur. And uh, that's, you know, the story that I've tried to capture in this book. And one of the reasons why I called my book King Richard to evoke this idea of a Shakespearean tragedy. You mentioned in your book how Hannah Nixon, Richard's mother, named her sons after English kings, except for poor Donald. So I'm not sure where she could have named him Henry, Henry, I guess, and didn't. Uh, And so Nixon was named after Richard the Lionheart. And much like Richard the Lionheart, who was king of England from 1089, excuse me, uh, 1189 to 1199, uh, Richard the Lionheart made his bones overseas, spent very little time in England, I think six months. And Nixon very much made his reputation overseas when it came to foreign policy. He's still rated, he and his partner uh, Kissinger are still rated as a the top or not at the, or just at the top when it comes to foreign affairs. Why do you think that aspect of the presidency, before we get to Watergate, that aspect of the presidency fascinated Nixon so much? Well, Nixon agreed with his rival and friend, uh, Jack Kennedy, that the really important thing that a president could do uh, was in the field of foreign policy. And domestic policy didn't really interest him. Um, I said he was born out in California. And, um, you know, so he looked out from the beach at San Clemente, where he had his um, one of his houses. Um, He looked out across the Pacific Ocean in the direction of China, which was then a completely closed totalitarian society. And he dreamed of remaking the world um, by bringing China into the global system. And it was an incredibly bold gamble, um, which um, 
you know, has shaped the world in which we live in today. I mean, some people would say, well, it was not such a great idea with hindsight to bring China into the world system. <laughs> but, uh, you know, of course, Nixon couldn't tell uh, the kind of crises we'd be going through 50 years later. But um, it does show that, you know, Nixon was a man of global ambitions. And, um, you know, that's very much... Uh, represented by his policy towards China, which, by the way, uh, he used in order to um, reach an uh, arms agreement with the Soviet Union. So it wasn't just a matter of uh, a new China policy. It was using that China policy to affect uh, U.S. relations with the other superpower, the Soviet Union. So he had an understanding of how all these different global parts fitted together. And, uh, you know, it's often said that it was only Nixon who could go to China, because Mm. uh, if a democratic president had tried to do the same thing, he would have been criticized from the right, from the Republican Party. So it needed a, um, you know, someone with Nixon's proven anti-communist credentials to take this very bold, strategic foreign policy move. And it showed some additional courage because even Nixon was criticized from the right. William F. Buckley was not a fan. There were there were very many uh, folks on the Republican right who thought it was a terrible mistake. Nixon proved them all wrong and, and actually created a metaphor. Nixon to China is used to describe a lot of other bold decisions by people, courageous decisions. Uh, you subtitled your book, An American Tragedy. What do you think are the most tragic elements of this tragedy of Watergate and Nixon's fall? Well, actually, that um, phrase in American tragedy was, uh, it's not something I invented, but both Kissinger and Gerald Ford uh, used that phrase to describe the torment that Nixon went through um, as a result of Watergate and the country went through as a result of Watergate. So you can apply that both to Nixon's own experience, but you can also apply it to the uh, country's uh, experience. I mean, I was thinking of the sort of Shakespearean tragedy of this man who rises to great heights through his own efforts and then through some kind of fatal flaw um, brings himself down. And, um, you know, very often in politics, the qualities that you need to rise to the top are not the same qualities you need to govern. And, um, you know, Nixon was somebody who, I mean, he uh, spent a lot of his life trying to get even with his enemies. Um, You know, he had a lot, carried with him a lot of resentments. And uh, these hatreds and resentments form part of his personal drive that resulted in him becoming president of the United States. But Also, in my view, it set in motion the forces that led to his resignation as president. On on some level, did did President Nixon think that he was just doing things that everybody does, like all presidents do? We all bug or we all have these sort of surreptitious uh, initiatives to be kind and that why am I being singled out for what I did? Lyndon Johnson bugged. John F. Kennedy bugged. Why me? Yeah, well, that was certainly Nixon's logic. Um, if you try to get inside his mind, and as he explained it uh, at the time and subsequently, 
he thought that the Kennedys got away with an awful lot and um, that uh, uh, including bugging of uh, political opponents. And he felt he was just, you know, playing the same game that his predecessors had. I mean, one difference was that um, previous presidents had used the FBI uh, to, uh, you know, spy on their political opponents. And um, J. Edgar Hoover decided um, that he wasn't going to do that anymore. So Nixon was deprived of the FBI as a weapon to use against his political enemies and so therefore, he began running these, or uh, having people on his behalf run these operations for him uh, out of the White House, which um, you know was proved to be very damaging for him because he could no longer claim any plausible deniability, and the legality uh, came into question. And we'll ask about the plumbers here in just a little bit. One of the great names <laughs> of all time. Uh, you know, when you read, it, it's kind of like I have this feeling when I read a book or watch a documentary about John F. Kennedy and you see him get off the plane in Dallas and you just want to go, just get back on. Like, just just don't do this. And you read about Watergate and any reasonable person, historian, would count Nixon as one of the most intelligent presidents in American history. He was phenomenally intelligent. And you just, as you read it, as it starts to unfold, you start to think, how could someone so smart do something so stupid and then keep doing it and not realize how stupid it is? Did that thought come through your mind as you were researching and writing this book? Like, man, you're doing such wonderful things. You're about to win, I think, 521 electoral votes in 1972. Like, you don't need to do this. You're going to win anyway, but right. you're doing it. Well, I mean, we have the benefit of hindsight, of course. And, um, you know, 50 years later, you can identify all these fatal turning points and mistakes, uh, but it's more difficult to do so if you're right in the middle of them. And events have a way of sort of just proceeding, and you're caught up in them. And, um, you know, you don't have the same benefit that historians do, which is to be able to look at everything and know how things uh, turned out. I mean, I've, in my books in general, have tried to write history as it actually took place that uh, in other words i think it was there was some famous philosopher who said that history is um lived forwards but written backwards um by that he means that you know historians uh sort of begin with the their own vantage point many years later but i have tried to put readers back into the moment and show that, um, you know, just try to describe uh, how one event led to another event. And, uh, you know, that's, if you think about it, is how history is actually unfolds. You know, um, Nixon didn't have the same advantage that historians have when they can, you know, pick uh, precisely point to all the mistakes he made. Well, your point about the historians, we should probably mention that history and the treatment of Nixon by historians and in history 
was a driving force for the installation of the tape system. Is that correct? Well, very much so. Um, actually, previous presidents had uh, had taping systems. Uh, Kennedy had a taping system. Uh, Johnson had a taping system. When Nixon came to office, um, he had Johnson's taping system ripped out because he didn't want to be taped. But then after a couple of years, he decided, well, it would be useful to have a historical record because he wanted to write his own memoirs and get the credit that he felt that he deserved for these foreign policy initiatives that we've been talking about. And so, um, uh, and he wanted to, there was a kind of rivalry with people like Kissinger. I mean, Kissinger was his partner, but was also his rival when it came to you know, claiming credit for all these different initiatives. So Nixon wanted to have his own private record. Now, Nixon was a bit of a klutz uh, technologically, <laughs> um, to put it mildly. He, you know, couldn't, nobody trusted him to start a tape recording by himself. So they came up with the brilliant idea, they thought at the time, but it proved to be disastrous, uh, to install a taping system that didn't have an on-off switch. It would just start recording whenever Nixon went into a room or picked up a phone. And that was really the, the difference between Nixon's taping system and Kennedy's or Johnson's, because in the case of those two earlier presidents, they turned the system on. But Nixon's system recorded absolutely everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, the criminal, and uh, as a result, it's a record of what was taking place in the White House, what was going through Nixon's own mind at crucial moments uh, that is really unrivaled in American history. And we're never going to get such a record again because no other American president is ever going to tape himself the way Nixon did. I think that's a, a very, I can be very confident about that prediction. Didn't that didn't that come up during the Iran Contra hearings in in the late eighties in the Ronald Reagan second term when they were investigating that someone actually asked is there a taping system in the Oval Office and the witness just started laughing and like no there's right. not no I mean with uh, of course with Trump we have all his tweets but you know tweets are very different to tapes tapes these uh, tapes of Nixon's were of private moments that he never intended to share with anybody. Whereas obviously um, Trump's tweets are part of his whole, you know, public persona, which gave us the term in the mid seventies of expletive deleted. Right, that comes from people who can't remember Watergate when Nixon was forced to uh, release transcripts of some of the tapes, but uh, he moved it. He removed all the bad language. So, you know, the bad language was usually things like goddamn wasn't terrible, but it was, um, but it could offend people out in middle America, I guess. And so instead of putting in the bad language, they uh, put in phrases like expletive deleted, which was actually sort of, you imagine something much worse than goddamn or whatever it was that Nixon had said. I just finished reading uh, Thomas Schwartz's book on Henry Kissinger. It's really good. It's terrific. And it's interesting to put his book together with yours to make the case how impactful the Pentagon Papers leak 
was to the Nixon administration's mentality. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I haven't read that book, but uh, yes, I think that the uh, leak of the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times uh, 50 years ago this year uh, did help lead directly to Watergate because Nixon and Kissinger were alarmed that all these government secrets were leaking out and uh, they worked each other up into a frenzy and they decided they had to do something about it. And uh, so that was the origin of the unit that you've uh, referred to as the plumbers, um, that was widely referred to as the plumbers, although its official uh, name was something different. It was something like the investigative unit or something. But this uh, group of people was formed uh, whose job it was, was to plug all these leaks, beginning with the leak of the Pentagon Papers. So you can draw a direct line between uh, the uh, uh, efforts to stop these government leaks that resulted from the Pentagon Papers uh, right through to Watergate. So you believe that that you believe that's the the start of the Watergate break in the Watergate Watergate conspiracy is the creation of the Plumbers Union to stop leaks, which was which had its genesis not only in the 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 secretiveness and the obsessiveness with leaks that already existed in the Nixon administration, but because of the actions of Daniel Ellsberg, part of the plumber's duties or or sin is the break-in of Ellsberg's psychiatrist, a fellow, Lewis Fielding, I think was his name. And it was the same cast of characters to a large extent that broke into the psychiatrist office that eventually bungled the Watergate burglary. Right. Um, uh, Gordon Liddy, Howard Hunt uh, were the leaders of that break-in of the uh, Daniel Ellsberg psychiatrist's office out in uh, Beverly Hills, actually. And um, so um, they were the same people who masterminded the break into the Watergate uh, a couple of years later. Now, the question is, why did Nixon um, cover up Watergate or why did he think it was necessary to cover up that crime? Um, And he could have pushed responsibility for Watergate onto his reelection committee uh, headed by John Mitchell. Um, The reason he didn't or the reason that it was impossible for him to separate himself and the White House uh, from Watergate uh, was that there'd been all these previous uh, break-ins, the most notable of which was the break-in of the uh, the offices of the Daniel Ellsberg psychiatrist. So Nixon feared that if he came clean over Watergate, that would expose some of these earlier break-ins. And I think that really led to what was actually the most dangerous uh, part of the Watergate for uh, Nixon was not the original break-in, but the uh, attempts to cover it up later. Um, And that was what motivated Nixon's determination to cover up Watergate. Nixon's close friend, John Mitchell, was previously attorney general, but was then head of the committee to reelect the president, which was nicknamed Creep. Was there any reluctance on Nixon's behalf 
to throw things over to the campaign, not only for the reasons that you state and that you articulate in the book, but also because of his personal friendship with Mitchell and Nixon's seeming inability to be confrontational in one-on-one situations. Right. I think that's also true that uh, John Mitchell was the big heavyweight in the government uh, next to Nixon. Uh, He'd been a a law partner of Nixon before, and uh, Nixon was reluctant to throw uh, Mitchell to the wolves. I think this is another uh, something that distinguished Nixon from Trump is that Nixon in, uh, there's a phrase of uh, a British prime minister William Gladstone, who said that in order to be a good prime minister, you have to be a good butcher. And Nixon wasn't a very good butcher. He uh, was unwilling to sacrifice people close to him, uh, largely for personal uh, psychological reasons, perhaps. And uh, he was certainly very late in uh, deciding that he had to get rid of uh, Mitchell and some of the other people close to him in the White House. Which is one of the reasons why H.R. Haldeman, his chief of staff, had a reputation for being such a wonderful butcher, a willing butcher. Yeah, I mean, Nixon used other people to do his dirty work for him, um, particularly his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman. And the irony, of course, is that eventually Nixon had to get rid of Haldeman himself, uh, which is right at the end of my book. And, um, you know, it was a very, very painful decision for him. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast is Michael Dobbs, former journalist and a brilliant historian, if I may say so, based on my reading of your books, which are superb. Please visit his website, michaeldobbsbooks.com. We are discussing his latest effort, King Richard, Nixon and Watergate, an American Tragedy. And Mr. Dobbs's book focuses on the first 100 days after Nixon's second inaugural in January 1973. At what point, if any, was the Watergate scandal survivable for Nixon? Or once once James McCord, one of the burglars, sent his letter to Judge Sirica saying that there's a cover-up and it's being ordered by higher-ups and he's just a scapegoat, was it too late at that point? No, I don't think it was too late. I think he where he would have been severely wounded, certainly, um, politically, but I think he could have survived as president. Um, I think it was survivable up until the time that uh, the secret of his taping system came out. And uh, he could have destroyed the tapes, um, but he decided to keep them because he thought that he could control them and that they would never be made public. He could just use them for his memoirs. But it was really this taping system that determined who was telling the truth. Was it Nixon or was it his accusers, uh, principally uh, John Dean? And without those smoking guns that the tape represented and which were only extracted from Nixon by a unanimous Supreme Court decision in 1974, 
I think Nixon could have made it to the end of his presidency, certainly, you know, severely wounded, but he would not have been forced to resign because there wouldn't have been a critical mass of evidence uh, that persuaded sufficient numbers of uh, congressmen and senators that he had to go, particularly Republican senators and congressmen. So Michael Dobbs is counselor to the president and he's in the Oval Office and the president turns to you and says, should I burn the tapes? You would have told him? (laughs) Well, it depends when you'd asked me that and uh, whether I was being, you know, politically calculating or whether I was being, you know, sort of based on as a historian, of course, I would not recommend him to burn the tapes because these tapes are a marvelous uh, historical document. Um, but for his sheer political survival, I guess I would have, you know, with hindsight, because it's difficult uh, to try to put yourself back into the actual event without, you know, all this historical knowledge that we now have. But with hindsight, I would certainly have advised him. Uh, to burn the tapes uh, in order to survive politically. And one of the interesting things about the tapes is the the very low number of people who knew that all these places had been bugged, for lack of a better term, were recording. It was Nixon. It was Haldeman. It was Alexander Butterfield, who was the aide who had to um, reveal the existence of the tapes as part of the Watergate hearings. It's always funny, the, the question to Butterfield was asked by Fred Thompson, who ended up playing the district attorney on law and order and being a United States Senator. But Kissinger didn't know Pat Nixon didn't know. I don't know if Ehrlichman knew, but all these, the secretary of state, secretary of defense, nobody knew that their conversations were being recorded. So they must've been mortified collectively when the tapes were made public. Right. Only four or five people uh, close to Nixon in the White House knew about it, plus the Secret Service officers whose job it was to um, retrieve the tapes, change the tapes and store the tapes. So there were three of also four or five Secret Service officers uh, who knew about it. Yeah, I think uh, they were mortified. I mean, for example, Henry Kissinger, who's always... Um, you know, uh, run down the tapes as a historical source. It's, he's claimed that, you know, they're not very interesting. Of course, he would say that a bit because he doesn't come across very well in the tapes. He comes across as uh, Mr. Psychophant number one. Yeah, he's pretty but, obsequious if you listen to these tapes, that's for sure. Yeah, he's sort of constantly sucking up to Nixon and playing a double game because he's sucking up to Nixon and then running him down in private conversations with journalists and others. Is it perhaps the very, very definition of of irony that one of the most secretive men ever to rise to high office, not just presidency, but high office in the history of the world, has left this amazing primary source material and Nixon fought hard to keep his tapes both out of the public eye and ownership of them as a private citizen and correct my history, but didn't he eventually prevail in some regard with regard to ownership of the tapes? 
Well, there was a long battle for control of the tapes, which eventually, I guess it was after Nixon's death, uh, the government or the National Archives won on behalf of uh, historians. And, um, you know, a deal was done with the family, uh, basically saying that, you know, if it was a purely personal matter, you know, conversation between Nixon and family members that related to purely personal matters, then the Nixon uh, family would have the right to withhold that. But everything else was uh, released. And it took about 40 years for all the tapes to become public. I mean, a number of pub, uh, of the tapes uh, were released at the time as a result of court orders, the Supreme Court order. But the vast bulk of them, you know, I'd say 95% of them only became, uh, were only released uh, over the last 10 years. Um, and really that uh, made it possible for me to write the book that I was able to write. Is it hard as a historian? Is it difficult to get to get a handle on everything because there's just so much absolutely i mean it's uh, you can and i think for it really presents a uh challenge to nixon biographers because there's so much um uh, for the lack of a better term nixoniana um you know nixon materials that no one person can possibly get a handle on all of this and that is part of the reason why I chose to focus on a shorter period of time, um, largely the few months after uh, Nixon's uh, uh, second inaugural, when his entire presidency fell apart. And by focusing on that period of the time, I can bring readers into the room and uh, we get a much more intimate view of uh, Nixon. Um, I sometimes refer it to as, you know, it's as though we're flies on the wall in the Oval Office or the Lincoln sitting room or other places around the White House. But a better description might be a bug in the desk, um, because these literally were bugs in Nixon's desk that, um, you know, so we can, we're sitting in the room alongside Nixon when he's taking all these decisions. And, um, you know, talking to people sometimes about great affairs of state and sometimes about uh, criminal matters and sometimes just about, you know, very trivial things that are happening every day. It's the mixture of those three things, I think, that is interesting, actually, and the way he can skip uh, within five minutes from, you know, having a conversation about, you know, the big issues of foreign policy to the grubby issues of Watergate to taking a call from his daughter and, uh, you know, exchanging loving remarks with one of his daughters. Watched an interview many years ago. It was with Nixon's 1972 opponent, Senator George McGovern, in which McGovern said that Watergate had no bearing on his historic defeat by Nixon. Nixon won 521 electoral votes and McGovern, I think, won 17. Do you agree with do you second McGovern's thoughts on this, that one had nothing to do with the other? Yeah, I think Nixon was headed for a landslide election victory, partly in reaction to the, you know, what many Americans perceived as the excesses of the 60s and the, uh, you know, revulsion against the hippies, the Vietnam War protesters and so on. 
Um, so he didn't yeah. actually need the, the paradox is that he didn't actually need to break into the Watergate to gather all this intelligence on his enemies. He would have won anyway. But again, you have to go back into the mindset of Nixon and his aides when they were preparing to fight that election. And it didn't seem quite as obvious uh, a result uh, as it eventually turned out. Um, first of all, he thought his opponent would not be McGovern, but uh, Muskie, Ed Muskie of Maine, who was a more right. centrist, moderate figure in the uh, Democrat Party and would probably have been a much more formidable opponent for Nixon. So when the whole idea of you know gathering all this political intelligence and breaking into the Watergate was formulated, um, they were imagined a different set of circumstances than those which, you know, actually unfolded. Vietnam seemed to have hung over not only the Nixon administration, the Johnson administration, and I guess you probably would premature to say it hung over the Kennedy administration. That would be probably overstating it, but it, it hung over the country as well. It created this, this entire atmosphere of distrust and and lack of faith in government how important we mentioned the pentagon papers which was a series of of assessments of how the war had been fought it did not cover the time of nixon's presidency but kissinger it seemed was the one who whipped nixon into a frenzy about the pentagon papers and the fact that if we can't keep secrets, then foreign countries won't want to do business with us. How does Vietnam help feed what eventually became Watergate? And as a journalist, putting the two together, what did that do to the country in the sense of, of who can you trust? And we need the media to hold the government accountable in a way that they never had to before. Right. I think that Vietnam, because of the divisions it created in America, fed into this us versus them mentality that uh, Nixon became a victim of. I mean, there was a, a certain point in, at the height of the anti-war protests that they had to surround the White House with buses, build a barricade around the White House in order to prevent the uh, protesters from gaining access to the White House. And uh, that sort of created in Nixon's mind a sort of sense of being under siege. Um, and, um, you know, he tried to break out of that by appealing to what he called the silent majority. But it accentuated in his mind this sort of idea of, you know, this division between the real America and um, all these hippies and uh, anti-war protesters and that was another thing that you know helped to lead to Watergate. Plus, Vietnam was a huge distraction for him, just in the amount of time that it took. And so, you know, he has also said that uh, he simply didn't have his eye on the ball because he was thinking about Vietnam. He was thinking about reelected. So he, up until the beginning of 1973, didn't actually spend a lot of time. Um, on Watergate. That was mainly his aides, um, John Dean, who was the legal counsel in the White House. They were, you know, running the cover up and Nixon was really a bit detached from all of that. 
He also claimed that if Mitchell had been minding the store instead of paying attention to his wife, Martha, who, if anyone in history, I guess maybe other than Lincoln, I wish had a Twitter feed, it would be Martha Mitchell. Uh, Mitchell's wife was uh, famously um, difficult and un, un, unable to be controlled and loudmouth, for lack of a better term, would call journalists in the middle of the night and insult the president and talk about sex and various other dramas. Uh, Nixon felt that Mitchell perhaps was so distracted by trying to deal with Martha that he wasn't minding the store. Is that is that something you believe in as well or no? Yeah, I think it's true that, um, and this is a reminder that, you know, often history is determined by these personal things that are going on. I mean, you know, Napoleon and uh, Josephine and jo- the impact that Josephine had on Napoleon and certainly that Martha had on uh, her husband, John Mitchell. Of course, it was a huge distraction for Mitchell. And uh, Nixon was right to say that, um, you know, Mitchell hadn't really been minding, this, wasn't minding the store at that point. And that was one of the reasons why Mitchell sort of went along with this uh, cockamamie scheme to break into the Watergate, um, at least in Nixon's mind. Um, and there's probably some truth in that. Nixon's downfall, if you if you look at the timeline, if you read your book, especially uh, from the, the point of the break-in, which is June of 72, there's just a series of, of significant hammer blows that chip away and eventually destroy the, the edifice of the cover-up. Of all those, which do you think two or three are the, are the most important? So June of 72, Nixon's riding high, not a shoe in for re-election, but clearly the favorite. His trip to China happens that year. Trip to the Soviet Union happens that year. Now in October of 72, Kissinger announces, you know, peace is at hand, which turned out to be a bit premature. But as you get through the Watergate break-in, how do the walls start tumbling down? And was it reversible in any way if, say, for example, James McCord keeps his mouth shut, one of the burglars, or Jeb Magruder, who was the deputy at the committee to reelect the president, keeps his mouth shut? Right. I mean, I think the pivotal uh, moment or period was the one that I've examined in my book, which is from January of 1973 with Nixon's uh, triumphant uh, reelection and uh, second inaugural uh, through the next three or four months when this very disciplined White House uh, hammered into shape by the chief of staff, uh, Bob Haldeman, all unravels. And these Nixon aides who had all been very loyal to him and loyal to one another all start turning on each other. And uh, eventually they turn on the president. And that's the what I was interested in exploring in this book, precisely this period. I think one of the key moments is, um, you mentioned James McCord. James McCord was one of the leaders of the uh, burglars, and he faced the prospect of going to jail. Uh, He knew how terrible the DC jail was because he'd spent some time there. And um, he, uh, the trial of the Watergate burglars began in court in Washington. The judge was a man called John Chirico, who had, he was a Republican. Um, 
had a very reputation of being a very tough judge. But despite the fact that he was politically aligned with Nixon, he was determined to get to the bottom of this scandal. So he started putting pressure on the defendants. And uh, there was one particular court session in which McCord listened to the number two man at the creep, um, Mitchell's deputy, a man called Jeb Magruder. And Jeb Magruder came into court and he swore uh, under oath that he had nothing to do with Watergate. And McCord thought to himself, well, he knew that from Gordon Liddy that actually Jeb Magruder had authorized the break-in into the Watergate. So McCord begins to think to himself, you know, why should I go to jail for something that we have been ordered to do? And the man who authorized it is still in his plum uh, Mm -hmm. White House job and is still you know, his reputation is intact. So that was a very dramatic moment for McCord, and he decided that he wasn't going to carry the can for Jeb Magruder. So he goes to the judge. He says that um, perjury has been committed in this trial. And that act of Magruder's is kind of like a house of cards. You remove one card, just one at the bottom, and this whole house of cards comes crumbling down. And that's precisely what happened as a result of Magruder's refusal to go along with, uh, uh, sorry, uh, McCord's refusal to go along with Jeb Magruder's perjury. I agree with that completely. To me, that's the, that turns everything from being a quote, third rate burglary to, you know, to becoming capital W Watergate. Is James, excuse me, is John Dean a hero in your mind? Well, I've tried to portray people in my books not as heroes or villains, but, you know, most of us have combinations of light and dark, of good and bad. And um, I think that applies to Nixon. It also applies to Dean. I mean, Dean was a loyal uh, functionary. Uh, actually, he was in charge of the cover-up. He was the, called himself the desk officer of the cover-up. Mm-hmm. But as a result of McCord's um, action uh, in betraying the other burglars, that put Dean in a very difficult position because you know Dean was you know handling all these hush money payments to the burglars, and Dean is a very smart person, and he realized that he uh, was in legal jeopardy. He was the first of Nixon's aides to understand the that he could go to prison um, as a result of that. So, you know, uh, Dean is, um, it's a combination of motivations. You know, there's some patriotic motivation, but there's also uh, the motivation of wanting to save himself. And it's very difficult to separate one motivation from another. Um, But I think, you know, it just goes to illustrate that, you know, we history is not black and white. History is shades of gray, and people like Dean uh, very much uh, illustrate that. May I ask another hero question? <laughs> sure. Is is Deep Throat a hero? Well, Deep Throat um, is uh, was the pseudonym invented by the Washington Post for the deputy head of the FBI, a guy called Mark Felt, who was you know, the loyal FBI man by day 
And by night, he was meeting with Bob Woodward and spilling the beans about Watergate. So, yeah, um, I think uh, Mark Felt slash uh, uh, Deep Throat is very similar to John Dean, that, um, you know, he's, um, you can describe him as a man of mixed motivations, that um, on the one hand, he was blowing the whistle, but on the other hand, he was uh, driven by personal ambition because he wanted to succeed Hoover as director of the FBI. And uh, he thought that uh, by uh, speaking to reporters and by running down his uh, the acting head of the FBI, um, he would have a shot at the top job himself, which was his lifelong dream. And that really does come through in your book, that aspect of it, which I'd never read before, that, that felt was very, very unhappy about not being chosen for the top job. Yeah, he um, and he was a very um, adept uh, a bureaucrat at you know use uh, being able to uh, uh, you know ruthlessly get even with his rivals and grab, try to grab the top job for himself. Of course, he didn't succeed because, ironically, the um, people in the White House, including Nixon, suspected him, him of being a leaker. And so Nixon was not willing to appoint Mark Felt to the top job. So he was never going to get it, but he certainly thought that he had a chance. I had read this in, in another book, and I want to ask you about some other Nixon books as well. But Nixon even said it in 73. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, I think, dies in January of 73. That when Nixon was going through this, he had no ex-presidents he could turn to that in one of the few times in American history, there were no living ex-presidents and there's famous pictures where Lyndon Johnson's talking to Eisenhower about Vietnam or Kennedy's talking to Eisenhower. There's a beautiful picture of them walking down a sidewalk uh, during the Cuban missile crisis. In other words, previous presidents had someone else who had been in the job to talk to, to lean on for advice. Nixon didn't have that as he started to go through Watergate. Do you think it would have made a difference either in 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 Nixon's actions or in the counsel he would have received? Say, for example, if Eisenhower, under whom Nixon had served as vice president, was still alive? I'm not sure it would have made a huge difference because Nixon wasn't about to share all those kind of intimate uh, details with uh, one of his predecessors. I mean, actually, LBJ died in January of 73. And um, mm -hmm. so... Uh, that's a scene in my book when uh, LBJ dies, and it's that point uh, from uh, late January 1973 that Nixon is the only surviving uh, president. Um, so it's interesting, but I don't think that made a huge difference to the way Watergate ended up. In April, I believe it is April of 73, is when Haldeman chief of staff and John Ehrlichman, deputy chief of staff, basically his domestic policy advisor, they both had to go and they were both let go by Nixon. How traumatic was that for President Nixon? And I forget the exact date in your book, so forgive me. I think it's in April of 73 where Nixon himself says, this is the day or the weekend when everything fall, fell apart. Right. All that happens in April of uh, 1973. 
And as I said before, Nixon uh, was not uh, a good butcher. And uh, he hated to get rid of anybody who was close to him. I mean, this is one of the differences between him and Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump went through four chiefs of staff in four years and fired some of them by tweet. Um, but Nixon found it very painful to get rid of, you know, even one chief of staff, um, Bob Haldeman. And when he uh, finally understood that he had to sacrifice Haldeman in order to save his presidency, this is at the end of April 1973, um, that was a, he has a, conversation with Haldeman that uh, I quote in my book. And he says to Haldeman, you know, I love you, son. He's calling him son by this stage. I love you like my brother. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a reference to one of the brothers that uh, Nixon, uh, one of Nixon's brothers who died from tuberculosis uh, when Nixon was a young man. And this was a very traumatic event in Nixon's life, um, the deaths of uh, his two of his brothers from tuberculosis, but one in particular. And, uh, you know, when he says to Haldeman, I love you like my brother, I think, and you know everything else that is going on in Nixon's mind, I think that's a, uh, you know, illustrates um, how traumatic this was for him. If Dean had kept his mouth shut, John Dean, counsel to the president, if he had just said, I'm just going to take the fall, I'll do my years, I'll write my book, I'll make a bunch of money, could that have stopped the momentum of Watergate? Possibly, but by that stage, the momentum had sort of built up. And I think uh, it would, this house of cards that I was talking about would have cracked someplace else. I mean, also, Jeb Magruder, who uh, was being maneuvered into a situation where he had to take the fall. Um, I'm not sure how long he would have lasted for. And he eventually, and he actually goes to the prosecutors within a few days of John Dean going to the prosecutors. It's, um, you know, John Dean has, you know, uh, everybody talks about Dean because he became Nixon's main accuser. But um, he was just actually the first. I mean, a couple of days later, Jeb Magruder uh, spills everything to the prosecutors. So even if Dean had remained loyal, um, this house of cards would probably have uh, started falling in some other direction. What did you think of the movie Nixon by Oliver Stone? Did you see it? I haven't. I think I did watch it some years ago, but I haven't really... I can't remember enough of it to talk about it, really. It's a terrific movie, even if, I mean, whatever your feelings of Nixon on, just visually and in terms of the writing, it's 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 funny, for lack of a better term. But it, it comes off more sympathetic than you would think towards the president, who I think Oliver Stone said he voted for in 1968. Now, there's some irony. Mm -hmm. Could you think of another, as we wrap up the podcast here with Michael Dobbs, author of... King Richard, Richard Nixon and Watergate, an American tragedy. Other Nixon books that you find compelling? Well, I think John Farrell's uh, biography of Nixon is the best single volume biography of Nixon. Um, and I mean, he is not able to go into this very, uh, this psychodrama of Nixon's final days uh, in the way that I have, but um, because he, 
is taking a sort of broader, you know, uh, bird's eye view of Nixon's entire career, whereas I'm just focusing on one particular slice of it. Um, but if you want a, you know, good overall Nixon book, I think that Farrell's is as good as it gets, actually. It is. I've, I've read it and it's wonderful, actually. Very well written. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. I promise they're harmless, Mr. Dobbs. Uh, question number one, what was your first job? Well, my first real job was working for Reuters uh, news agency. I was hired as a graduate trainee. And uh, so I um, went to work as a junior reporter for Reuters and they sent me to Italy as a one of their staff members in Italy so my first job was for Reuters in Rome which was a wonderful way to start a journalistic career (laughs) number two what was your first concert I wasn't much of a music buff actually so I'm uh I can't I mean it was probably some concert at university and it was probably not a rock concert, but a guitar concert. I saw the uh, Spanish classical guitarist Segovia, Segovia, I guess his name was. Andre Segovia. Mm-hmm. Right, at, mm-hmm. um, at university. So that's the first one I really remember. Perhaps I'd been to others. Also, growing up in England, I went to um, the proms. And uh, I remember going to the last night of the proms, which is a great English tradition traditional events when people sing land of hope and glory and so on and rule britannia <laughs> so if you count that as a concert um but uh yeah it wasn't a it wasn't a rock concert question three if you could recommend any book for someone to read which book would you choose well i've just actually finished rereading anna karenina by tolstoy and i think that's the greatest novel that's ever been written because Tolstoy um, has a way of getting inside his characters and, um, you know, exploring their inner thoughts in a way that is authentic. And uh, that has also impacted the way I myself write history because I'm trying to, you know, get inside uh, my characters, in this case, uh, Richard Nixon. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Well, I witnessed the collapse of communism personally, close up. So that was a pretty (laughs) huge event that um, I, um, you know, really marked my career, I guess. uh, So I'm interested in revolutions. I'd probably say either the Russian Revolution or the French Revolution, Russian Revolution of 1917 or the French Revolution of 1789, um, you know, when everything begins to fall apart. And um, do I have to just have one or can I have two? <laughs> you, you may have two, sir. Yeah, okay. Well, I have those two revolutions. You know, I was said at the beginning of the podcast where you watch Kennedy get off the plane in Dallas or, or Nixon as he goes through Watergate. It's extraordinarily sad to read about. Nicholas II and his family, knowing how it ends for them in the basement at Ekaterinburg. Uh, mm-hmm. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Talk about anything. 
Well, that's a good question. And I don't know who to choose there offhand. Um, I'd have to think about that a bit. Probably, I mean, I don't think I'd choose a politician. I'd choose somebody else. So I have to think of somebody quickly. I know probably somebody like um, one of the, you know, tech, uh, I mean, if, if, um, if the Steve Jobs was around, that would be interesting. Perhaps one of the sort of technological, um, not sure which one, but uh, one of those people who have changed our world through technology. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest has been journalist and historian Michael Dobbs. We were discussing his latest book, King Richard, Nixon and Watergate, an American Tragedy. You may find Mr. Dobbs's books at michaeldobbsbooks.com. Thank you, sir, so very much for your time. I really enjoyed the discussion. It was a lot of fun. Well, thank you. So did I. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.